0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, Robert, I know that recently
1: you were on vacation somewhere.
0: I was, yeah. went down to uh, Florida with the family. And on the way back up, we stopped at this place called uh, Wakula Springs, Wakula Springs State Park in Florida near Tallahassee. Ended up just being really delightful. Yeah, uh, what's this place like? Basically what you have here is just an enormous spring, okay? Like a geological spring, Yeah. water coming out of the ground. Yeah, water coming out of the ground, water coming out of just enormous caverns that are under the water here, uh, really clear water, and it uh, maintains a constant temperature of around 69 or 70 degrees. So when winter comes, it's a haven for manatees, and uh, especially manatees, but other creatures too that, that, that want that constant temperature. Uh-huh. Um, Interestingly enough, they filmed a few scenes from the creature from from the Black Lagoon there. Oh, great. Yeah. Particularly the creature's lair. Uh Uh huh. You get to pass by that if you take these boat tours. and, and that's really the main reason to go. You can swim there, but you can, but you get to go on these, these really cool boat tours where you get to see all of these crazy, uh, estuary, um, uh, species doing their thing, all the, like, diving birds. Gators? Uh, gators, you know, laying in the sun by the dozens, get to see manatees, and you also get to see these uh these mullets, the fish mullet, not the uh, the hairstyle. you probably saw some of those i yeah, I think I did see see a traditional um a hairstyle mullet yeah <laughs> here or there but but yeah, these are the fish and they're just leaping out of the water it's like it's it, you look around you expect to see like a Disney princess wading around like that 's how active the wildlife is here. Uh-huh. and uh it, but but it really makes you think like why are these creatures why are these fish jumping out of the water? Uh, If you're like me and you didn't have a lot of preconceived notions or you hadn't researched it before, you might think, oh, well, there are all sorts of animals around here. There are gators in the water. They're probably jumping out of the water to escape predators, right? Yeah, that makes pretty easy sense. Uh, A lot of the maneuvering you'd see in a fish, especially a prey species, would be fleeing behavior. Mm -hmm. And yet it turns out there's more to it than that. And uh and not only with, uh, with mullets, but with other species of fish as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the reason we're having this episode, to discuss some of the, the mysteries, some of the theories, uh, some of the, at, at times, myths surrounding leaping fish, fish that actually throw themselves out of the water, out of their, their habitat, their aquatic habitat into this strange alien world of gases and vapors. Yeah. B- when you think
1: about it, it, it is so weird. Um it's hard for us to imagine what it's like crossing this boundary between mm-hmm. worlds from the water up into the land of gas into the atmosphere because it's not exactly like a terrestrial animal diving into the water right uh because when you jump out of the water the water is your natural environment gravity's always going to be pulling you back down into this watery world plus there's just so much more going on underwater than there is going on in the air, I mean, on the land is one thing, but you know, th- think about what most of the air above the water is like. It's just, it's a void. Uh, under the water is another ecosystem. Leaping into the air is almost as if terrestrial animals could briefly leap into outer space.
0: Yeah, or it makes me it makes me think of the part in Phantasm where they go through like the Stargate into mm-hmm. the barren world with the dwarves are hauling stuff around. <laughs> it is like it's like zipping out of your world into another and then coming back into your your world, perhaps in a different location, making yeah. it kind of kind of like that teleport that uh, the the Raiden character does in the first couple of Mortal Kombat games. You know? Oh, it's great. Yeah. What does he say when he teleports or does he have one? Um, I, he I he has something Leigh. he says when he does the Superman,
1: but I don't remember if he uh-huh. says anything when he teleports, but maybe, maybe he should. He just grins and has lightning come out of his eyes. Okay. What he should do, I, I I hope someday somebody goes back to the first Mortal Kombat game and dubs in uh, Christopher Lambert's lines from the movie.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot I that he played so. Raiden
1: in the first one. Uh-huh. <laughs> But back to leaping fish. Ah, uh, yeah. So Robert, knowing yes. your inquisitive nature, I bet you asked somebody at
0: the park about the mullet jumping behavior, didn't you? I did. And, uh, the, the park ranger was, uh, very insightful in all this and he mentioned that there are a handful of theories here. Okay. Uh, and the idea that they're escaping predators is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one, is that they may jump to dislodge parasites. And certainly, aquatic life is full of many strange parasite removal strategies, including allowing cleaner organisms to crawl into your body, right? (laughs) Um, Wait, what? Allowing cleaner organisms? Oh, you've seen... uh, Oh, I see. You mean um, an organism that does cleaning, not a relatively cleaner organism. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm talking like like allowing a small shrimp to climb into your gills or your mouth in order to eat these things. Right. Um, At times even allowing uh, creatures from the air to uh, come down and feast on your parasites, I believe it's the sunfish that does that. Allows, it, allows certain birds to help remove its parasites. That's fantastic. Now, can you imagine if every time we got like a, a guinea worm or something like that, we could just leap into outer space to try to fix it? <laughs> well, it, that sounds kind of ridiculous, and and indeed, that's one of the criticisms against this theory. Uh, Broadly speaking, concerning fish, because you see that thrown out a lot with with jumping fish. Oh, it's a parasite removal strategy. Uh-huh. But critics of this theory will point out that hey, parasites once they get in you, they have ways of lodging themselves where they want to be. Right. Just merely the the, the the a frantic leaping through the air is not going to dislodge them. Okay. Well, then what are the other theories? Well, the the crazier theory, and this is one that I, I find really interesting, is that mullets. Spend a lot of their time in waters that are low in dissolved oxygen. Mm. And so they may exit the water in order to clear their gills and expose themselves to higher levels of oxygen. So that, that really blew my mind. The idea that essentially the, the fish is coming out of the water to breathe and then returned to the water. But that's not waters. how fish breathe. <laughs> I know, but, uh, but it's, this is one of the theories. Awesome. Um, They also may jump during spawning season to break open their egg sacs in preparation for the spawn. Hmm. And uh, marine biologist Dr. Grant Gilmore thinks it may come down to their sometimes dark habitats. They may jump uh, in these cases to let others in the school know where they are. Ah, so in this case, it would be
1: a form of communication or social signaling, which comes up later in this episode with some of the other jumping fish we're going to talk about, some of the more ferocious ones. All right. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to be looking at some of these, uh, some of the most interesting fish jumping behaviors around the world. And I, I want to say that I, I found this topic way more interesting than I expected to. Uh, yeah, first yeah. I was like, OK, what is there to say about fish jumping? They jump. Uh, but but fish jumping can be very strange, can be a danger, can be a nuisance, can be very funny. Uh, and the, the reasons why they do it are more mysterious in some cases than I would have guessed. But, uh, oh, okay, so I guess we should start uh, broadly. What, what do we know about, in general, why fish jump? Well, well oh, and sorry, one more thing yes. I should say. We should specify, you all out there, you know the difference between a fish and a mammal. So you've seen dolphins jump uh, playing in the waves or at a dolphin show or uh, maybe just playing Echo the Dolphin. We're, we're not talking about mammals today. This is going to be a fish-focused episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's even a gliding squid that propels itself out of the ocean by shooting out a jet of water at a high, you know, high pressure water jet. Uh huh. We're not going to get into that either. <laughs> okay. we'll, you know, if there's enough demand, we'll save other leaping, um, uh, sea life for other episodes. Okay. But yeah, I, th- I think a good place to start is just to sort of go back to this idea that, okay, fish jump out of the water to escape predators and acknowledge that yes, this actually is a strategy with some creatures. Sure. Uh, for instance, killifish. Mm-hmm. Now they're roughly, 1,270 different species of killifish, and most are fully aquatic with no obvious morphological specializations for terrestrial locomotion. Individuals from several different species have been observed moving across land, though, via a tail flip behavior that generates a terrestrial jump. Wait a minute. So this isn't just jumping into the air. This is jumping onto a dry land surface. Yeah, it's essentially... It's getting too dangerous in the water. I got to jump out uh-huh. and and then flop back in. And they do they do this to escape predators or occasionally apparently poor water conditions.
1: Okay, so in our outer space analogy, this is more like uh, instead of just briefly leaping into outer space, if things got really hairy wherever you were, you could jump onto the moon for a minute and then jump back down somewhere on Earth.
0: Yeah, or taking like a you know a proposed space tourism flight that just sends you into low orbit and then brings you back down. Uh Be that kind of thing, I think. Uh, But indeed, kind of like Raiden's teleport, where he's blinking out of this world, I guess going to some godland, and then coming back into the picture somewhere else. And this is interesting because too, because that aqu- the aquatic amphibious distinction is key because it's one thing for say an air breathing, walking catfish for mud skippers or lungfish to behave in this way, this way, because they've taken things to the next level, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, bordering on, you know, creature from the black lagoon or blood waters of Dr. Z territory, right? But aquatic fish, that just seems crazy, right? Um, so yeah, the, the tail flip flings them out of the water through the air several body lengths, sometimes out of the water and onto the bank, and then they have to flip to get back in.
1: Sounds dangerous though. I mean, if you, you're a fish, you flip out of the water and then you rapidly twist your body around to try to flip back into the water. I mean, you, you've only got a very limited amount of
0: time there, right? Right. Yeah, because if you, because the, the big risks here are that you're going to uh, you're gonna you could dry out. Or you could asphyxiate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you're of course also banking on the idea that there are no, um, terrestrial predators on the water bank. So that's the killifish. Yeah. Uh, what else do we have? Take us to the next, uh, the next level here with our leaping, uh, aquatic creatures.
1: Well, I want to talk, Robert, about an Asian carpnado. Ooh, sounds good. Okay, so stop me if you've seen this video, this YouTube video before. You got two passengers sitting in a boat. They're in twin seats facing off the stern of a fishing boat with an outboard motor. Is this Godfather 2? No, no, no. Okay. No. Uh, this is a grainy YouTube video. Okay, I'm misremembering the Set scene. to, uh, set to some slick new metal riffs. Now, the boat appears to be sitting in like a river or a lake. It's, opaque freshwater and uh, each of the two passengers sitting facing off the back of the boat are holding a compound hunting bow with a knocked arrow and the driver then throttles up the engine the boat starts to move and these lines of white churning wake peel out the back of the boat you can see the waves coming out and as this happens dozens of fish or maybe hundreds of fish begin to leap out of the water into the air. Uh, by the looks of it, sometimes flying above the heads of the passengers and they, they arc over the boat. Sometimes they fly right into somebody's neck and slap them on the face. A fish hits you in the back uh, or it lands flopping in the driver's lap. And as you would expect, based on the setup, the passengers try to shoot the fish with their arrows as they leap through the air. Uh, in other similar videos, you, you might scratch the bow and arrow and feature just nets, people trying to catch the fish with nets, or shooting at them with shotguns, trying to hit them with baseball bats, or maybe a modified baseball bat with nails in it, uh, pitchforks, etc. Okay. Uh, I might add that in the very first video I watched that I mentioned, the one with the compound bow, uh, it was sort of this fish-human collision supercut with with the new metal background music uh it looks pretty dangerous especially because there are sometimes other boats in the water downrange of the bow fishers so we are not recommending this behavior yeah it sounds sounds a bit reckless uh but what's going on here why why are these hundreds of fish flying through the air to be shot i need a better metaphor than like fish in a barrel like uh, <laughs> like fish in outer space yeah Uh, (laughs) Well, the video identifies these very unfortunate vaulting fish as Asian carp, and I can't confirm the identification through all the graininess, but but this would make sense because some species of so-called Asian carp are known for this bizarre frenzied jumping behavior in the presence of boats. So what are Asian carp? Asian carp is not one species, but it's a a common group name applied to several species of carp native to East and Southeast Asia, including waterways of Siberia, China and Vietnam. And these species would be big head carp, black carp, grass carp and silver carp. So carp belong to the freshwater fish family known as Cyprinids and uh, before the Asian carp were introduced a couple of decades ago there there were already carp in North America that were considered kind of a benign nuisance species, but, uh, several species now known as Asian carp were introduced to the United States in the 1960s and 70s. And originally they were contained. They were contained in southern aquaculture and sewage treatment enclosures. I think in Arkansas originally I saw. And so the idea was that these imported carp would help control contaminants in these areas. For example, they'd swim around And eat algae out of ponds that were being used as fish farms, like for catfish, uh, farming. Uh, but flooding events, of course, often connect waters that are not inherently Ah. connected. And so flooding allowed these non-native species to escape their farms and enclosures and spread into natural waterways around the Mississippi watershed. And now they're all over the place. They're spread all over freshwater fisheries in the Midwest and beyond. They're in the Mississippi. They're in the Illinois River. And a lot of people are worried about these and consider them uh, an invasive species since they can represent a threat to native wildlife. They reproduce quickly. They grow quickly. They uh, supposedly degrade the quality of aquatic environments and they tend to outcompete other fish. Uh, and I, I've seen estimates that they can some of these species consume about 20 percent of their own body weight every day. But they don't necessarily prey on other fish. Instead, they're mostly plankton and algae feeders, which still is a big problem because that's the bottom of the food chain, right? Mm -hmm. That's what everything has to eat in order to work its way up the food chain and get that energy to survive. So they're causing problems for every organism everywhere along the line. So why do they jump? Well, the big head carp and the silver carp can both jump, but it's the silver carp in particular that's just notorious for frequently having these frenzies where they leap out of the water all over the place. And the commonly accepted explanation for why they do it is pretty simple it's the the main one that came to your mind when you were thinking about the mullet first it's that they're scared they're leaping out of the water as an escape mechanism triggered by a threatening stimulus like the roar of a boat motor so somebody revs up their engine they get their their arrows knocked and the the fish hear that sound and they start leaping all over the place and once one starts leaping all of them start leaping so that sounds like a pretty funny situation, and I, I will admit uh, seeing these images of fish just flapping all over the place uh-huh. through the air, slapping people in the back of the head, leaving a big slimy streak aclo- across somebody's like chin and throat <laughs> as they, they slap up under there. Uh, it sounds funny, but when you think about what it's actually like to be in the middle of it, it it can get kind of scary because the big head and silver carp are known to jump about three meters or about 10 feet vertically out of the water, about six meters or 20 feet horizontally across the surface. Uh Silver carp tend to weigh up to about 20 pounds. Big head carp commonly weigh about twice that. But in rare cases, these fish can reportedly grow very large up to around a hundred pounds. So think of like a hundred pound object flying at you out of the water, especially if you're moving at a rapid speed. Also, uh, just do the, the the quick Newtonian physics in your head. That can be a heavy impact. Now, I found one survey of people who used the Illinois River in 2010 and 2011, and it was a small sample size, so don't read too much into this. But it found this was hilarious to me: 65 percent of residents from these Illinois River sites who used the river had seen Asian carp jump. Okay, but of those people who'd seen a carp jump. Almost three-quarters of them had been hit by a carp. <laughs> um, so if you've seen a carp jump, chances are a carp has slammed into you. 9% of them sustained injuries and 15% reported uh, sustained watercraft damage from the Asian carp. And th- there's just one example I want to give of the kinds of injuries these things can cause. I found a KTVI local news story from St. Louis from last year, August of 2015, And it tells the story of this guy named Jordan Fiedler, who got his face messed up real bad by some Asian carp while inner tubing along a channel in the Mississippi. So uh, according to the story, his father was driving the boat, and he was riding in an inner tube behind it, and then the fish start leaping. They they jump up all over the place, and one hits him in the face. And uh, a quote he gave is, quote, I knew something was wrong. I felt my nose, and it was way over here. Uh. So, uh, the impact fractured his nose, it dented his forehead, shattered bones in his eye sockets and above his eyebrow, uh, and he had to undergo a three and a half hour surgery to install a piece of mesh and screws to fix the shape of his skull. So this is no small
0: injury. This is, this is a devastating Fish impact.
1: If nobody has made a Jaws-style movie about carp yet, uh, about the leaping carp, mm-hmm. I think they should. Well, This is the real Sharknado, except it's not a shark. This is Carpnado.
0: Well, hopefully, I- I'm really hoping someone will take this whole episode as inspiration, and maybe it'll be an overall just jumping fish uh horror movie. Uh-huh. All the various examples we throw out here.
1: It's the fish version of the birds, maybe. Yeah.
0: The, the fishes uh, the
1: fish, weirdly though, as mundane as carp may seem, they actually also have a mythological significance. I bet you didn 't think that we'd wrap some some mythology into this episode, but it's i really
0: yeah i didn't even think about it and normally i'm i'm all about finding it i didn 't even think to look well, apparently, the jumping ability of carp has a cultural and
1: slight mythological significance in Chinese tradition, so. There's a story in Chinese mythology of a carp swimming upstream and that if a carp swimming upstream is able to jump over a waterfall that's known as the dragon gate, that carp will transform into a dragon. And with that comes all of the symbolic uplift that applies. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the dragon is a is a majestic, regal creature associated with power and with uh with grandeur and and with the uh, the, the imperial authority, basically. And flight. Yes, and flight. There you go. So uh, apparently the expression of, quote, a carp that jumps over the dragon gate commonly signifies a person who accomplishes some feat that leads to like a sudden improvement in life status, such as passing exams at university or acquiring some coveted government position. It's like if, if you get a major life upgrade due to some some achievement of yours, you are a carp who has jumped the dragon
0: gate. And hopefully not smash anybody's face on the way. All right. Well, everyone keep that myth in mind because I feel like we're going to get back to some of these ideas uh, with some of our later examples. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to look at salmon. We're going to look at swordfish. We're going to look at sturgeons and ultimately the flying fish itself.
1: All right. We're back. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about the mythological symbology of carp swimming Mm -hmm. upstream, trying to leap over that waterfall and turn into a mighty dragon. But, of course, carp are not the only fish that struggle mightily to progress upstream against a current, even leaping over rapids and waterfalls.
0: Yeah, indeed. What is one of the most iconic images of leaping fish? Like a perfect uh, like nature documentary image. It's the salmon. It's the salmon going upstream to spawn, leaping
1: over the rapids, and a bear just grabbing (laughs) them. You know what I mean? Yeah, indeed. That's the bear version of the people trying to hit a carp with a baseball bat with nails in it. It's just the
0: bear's claw swiping at the salmon (laughs) as it flies over the rapids. Yeah, this is a So, so let's break down exactly what's happening here. Um, it, because it's, it's pretty amazing. It's easy to take it for granted when you've seen it so many times, yeah. but salmon spend their early lives in freshwater rivers and then they swim out to sea. To the salt water to feed and grow. But when spawning time comes, they engage in what we call a salmon run. And what grizzly bears, of course, call like a seafood buffet, I right. guess. Right. <laughs> uh, they, so the fish travel upstream to their natal spawning grounds. They spawn and then they die. And then the nutrients in their bodies wash downstream to the estuaries. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of an elegant, um, practice here. Mm-hmm. But making it upstream is quite a journey, especially when you're having to deal with rapids and waterfalls. Um, you know, no dragon gates, but still some significant challenges there right uh and so they they leap out of the water, they jump sometimes uh up to twelve feet or three point six five meters now not only they have to contend not only with bears but also man uh humans have uh, have shown a, a tremendous uh, ability of course to alter natural waterways to install dams bridges what have you oh yeah this is
1: actually figured into uh people trying to control the spread of carp like silver oh, yeah? carp the jumping carp in american waterways so you've got these uh, carp moving slowly upstream and to prevent them from spreading even further, some people have said, well, we need to construct barriers of some kind. But these have to be <laughs> okay. some pretty tall barriers, right? Because right. these things can, you know, jump 10, 10 feet high and 20 feet long. So uh, that would have to be a serious barrier to prevent the carp from progressing.
0: Yeah, I and mean, then what do you do about other creatures that have a, a natural right? Are you going to install like a, a border guard to yeah. keep the carp out but make sure the right creatures move through? I don't know. it's tough.
1: I, I saw one solution that was literally an electrified fence in the water. Oh, wow, where people installed uh, little devices that put electrical current in the river to prevent the carp from swimming by. Hmm.
0: Well, you know with uh, with the salmon, uh, in the case of dams and other structures, uh, they actually we actually sometimes uh, create uh, fish ladders or fish to help them out, yeah. and these these can be quite interesting because sometimes they essentially look like nothing more than a series of buckets yeah. that they can splash in and jump in and out of to actually make it over whatever the obstacle is. Yeah, a, a watery staircase, yeah, of sorts. But it's a cool idea because because as we, as we pointed out, like not only is it important for the for the salmon to actually reach their destination, but it actually you know their ultimate death up there ends up having playing an important role in the overall ecology of the river. Isn't this also why the salmon cannon was invented?
1: Yes. I believe so. It was to yeah. to help uh help the salmon get upstream. I don't
0: remember whatever became of that. Yeah, I don't know if that became a standard or if that was just kind of a flash in the pan. Uh-huh.
1: All right, so one thing that comes to my mind is that of course a carp can jump up out of the water, hit you in the face and that can cause some injury, but there are
0: also fish much bigger than carp that do jump. That's right. And some of them jump with tremendous speed. Yeah. Um I'm thinking of course about the mighty swordfish. Okay. Which uh is uh its its a scientific name is uh Xiphius Gladius, which uh basically is just the word sword repeated in two different languages. So <laughs> like basically we're so excited about swordfish looking like a, a human murder weapon uh-huh. that we just call them sword sword. It's like a little kid. Sword, yeah. sword. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course they're just uh it, it's uh, it's basically just a a bill. They are billfish. There mm-hmm. there are other billfish with with uh, bills that uh, resemble swords. Others resemble bills. Sometimes they look like saws. Yeah, uh, there are a number of different species. Um and interestingly enough uh, evidence seems to support the theory that the, the pointy end is more about speed than anything. So it's not a weapon, it's uh,
1: more of a aerodynamic
0: design. Right. There's actually a weak point in the skull where the sword meets the skull and it prevents them from being a proper javelin. Like if they if they were to hit something at too great a speed it would just snap. And the weak point is due to a lubricating gland that reduces drag and increases speed. Like it basically pumps out oil. Um it like spreads out through vessels, pumps out this uh, this lubricant that lubricates the sword and the whole and the thing's whole head uh that allows it to just sort of slip through the the water a little bit faster so before the swordfish races they 're sitting there lubing up their swords essentially yeah. yeah and there uh you know I think there are still some arguments that it may to certain degrees have uh, you know have have some sort of defensive capability as well yeah. uh especially if you're talking about a slashing as opposed to a full on like um uh you know ramming speed yeah. type of a stabbing maneuver but it might be a, a, a secondary use or a, yeah. sort of uh, you use it in a pinch yeah cuz it certainly it certainly is, is a it, it it certainly can be dangerous as we'll discuss here uh but the speed's the big thing and and, and indeed swordfish are generally ranked like the third fastest fish they're only surpassed by the black marlin and the sailfish both of which are uh, are other uh, types of billfish well how fast uh swordfish um the estimates vary on all of these and people will get into fights <laughs> over exact speeds yeah but generally you're looking at uh, the black marlin it clocked around possibly 80 miles per hour no 120 no nine. way yeah 129 kilometers per hour uh that's like twice as fast as your average boat can go yeah but but then again these are these are creatures that are living in the open water they um they they're dealing with with the vast distances so they have room to build up that speed um sailfish 69 miles per hour 110 and the swordfish comes in at a you know a, a more conservative uh 60 miles per hour 97 kilometers per hour but again People will argue back and forth on these stats,
1: no, that's still amazingly yeah. fast, considering the water. I mean, when you think about moving through water, all the friction yeah. that's
0: in, that's there, I mean it's crazy, and they've evolved to deal with that friction about it just about as well as any sea animal is going going to manage uh-huh. uh, of course, they're also known to use that intense speed to hurl themselves completely out of the water now why uh one of the, the one of the things about swordfish in particular is that they're rare creatures, they're elusive creatures. And uh, they don't do well in captivity. So it's, it's hard to really study them and their ways. But they are susceptible, like everything else, to parasites. So there is a theory that they may be trying to dislodge parasites. Uh, in particular, what would these parasites be? Yeah. Um, in particular, the 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 paper I was looking at mentioned remoras, which are of course sucker fish that feed on other para- that feed on ectoparasites. Okay. So essentially, these things might be bothering them. At the very least, they're 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 screwing with their streamlined uh, body, right? They're they're messing up their speed potentially. So perhaps they're jumping out trying to dislodge those remoras, or if they have a fisherman's like a sports fisherman's hook in them, well, that's something they they are probably trying to dislodge as well. Yeah. Uh, And that's certainly the iconic scene, right? Somebody gets a a swordfish on the hook and it's leaping out of the water.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see that at a much lower level. Just imagine you've probably seen footage of a bass fisher or something like that with a bass on the line and it jumps out of the water. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know the question on everybody's mind here. Has anybody ever been impaled
0: by a swordfish by the sword? Yes. The sword sword. (laughs) Yes, indeed they have. Um, Now, it's it's a rare occurrence, just as these human interactions with swordfish are already kind of a rare thing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, people fish for them, but still, they're elusive. So this isn't something to get really worked up about, right? You're you're probably going to be putting yourself in the position to to have the outside chance of this occurring, but uh, as of 2007, there were no recorded attacks, and I put that in quotes because these are not creatures that eat humans or would seem, seemingly attack humans. Any incidents seem to have been more or less accidental. Right. But, um, as of 2007, there were no, uh, no recorded attacks that had actually resulted in death, though the paper in question, swordfish attack, death by penetrating head injury, did outline one such incident. And then in 2015, a deep sea fishing charter captain in Hawaii was fatally stabbed in the chest by one while trying to capture it with a spear gun. So basically, it thrashed around after the spear hit the 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 fish, and then it managed to skewer him in the chest and okay. killed him. So it's a rare occurrence, but with a with a sword like that, with a large fish flopping around, uh, jumping out of the water, if you're close to it, yes, you run the risk of being run through. Right. But even
1: in this one incident mentioned here, it sounds like this guy was kind of – I don't want to say he was asking for it. but He put
0: him – well, basically, he just put himself in in close proximity to a large, sharp fish. Yeah. And there's going to – you're rolling the die when that happens, right? Right. You don't wrestle with a unicorn. Exactly. Uh But then again, of course –
1: there are other very large fish that jump as well. Uh, the, in fact, as we saw with the carp example, you don't need a spike or a sword-sword in order to do some damage when you run into somebody.
0: Right. All you need is a high-powered um, recreation uh, vessel and, uh, and and a 100-pound carp, perhaps. Yeah. But what if it was even bigger? What if you were talking, instead of a 100-pound carp, what if you were talking about, say, Florida's Gulf sturgeon? Which if you've ever seen a sturgeon in an aquarium these uh-huh. they 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 look like an armored tank or something you know they're yeah. they're rather intimidating and then they get huge they can come in at uh the florida sturgeon, Gulf sturgeon in particular can come in at eight feet long two point five meters and up to two hundred pounds or ninety one kilograms in weight. And yes, they sometimes jump out of the water up to six feet out of the water. And occasionally that we're not only talking the risk of injury here, there, there have been lethal occurrences of sturgeon impacts. Oh man. Well, I,
1: I gotta hear about that in a second, but this is weird to me because maybe I, I assume sturgeon must be able to move fast, uh, if this is the case, but I've never seen a sturgeon move quickly. I've seen sturgeon in mm-hmm. aquariums and they always seem, incredibly chilled out and very languid fish just just hang in there. I mean, barely moving at all.
0: Yeah, it is. I I have to admit that too. Like seeing them in aquariums are always really interesting, kind of intimidating, but very still. Yeah. But yeah, they, they jump. Um, in 2015, in fact, uh, one one of these uh, jumping sturgeons actually killed a five-year-old girl oh, uh, no. when it leapt out of the water into her family's fishing boat. It and it also injured her mother and her brother as well. In 2007, uh, nine people were injured in a collision with a sturgeon, uh, resulting. And this was in Florida, resulting in warning signs uh, that were posted to encourage slower motorboat and jet ski speeds. So. Yeah, you have a two hundred pound fish flying out of the water, up to six feet out of the water, and then you have a, a motorboat, you know, moving at high speeds as well. That's where the, these possibilities uh, present themselves. Okay, but the fish this big, why do they jump out of the water? Well, it's remained a bit of a mystery, but uh, we have a few familiar theories as well as one that's kind of new here uh, for our discussion uh-huh. here. So. First of all, all species of sturgeon will jump at times. The Gulf sturgeon is known to jump at two different times of the year in the rivers during July and August and early in the offshore feeding period. So one theory is they do it to escape predators. But this is a big fish. It's I a mean, big fish. How many yeah, Predators do they have? Exactly. It's kind of a lame theory because the larger sturgeon do not have predators. Um, another theory is that they do it for fun. <laughs> and this is one I see mentioned with dolphins. And maybe we'll save that one for another uh another discussion. Well, I don't want to be unfairly prejudiced
1: against the, uh, I don't know, the intellectual capabilities of fish, mm-hmm. because as we learned with our birds episode, sometimes you underestimate what other uh, animal minds are capable of. But I tend to think of play as something that's more associated with more complex mammalian nervous systems, which is why it makes sense with, with dolphins, you know, kind of intelligent mammals that fish, I don't know. Are they mentally complex enough to play?
0: yeah I mean plus it's also it comes down to economics. I was reading some thoughts on this from biologist uh, Ken Sulak, and he pointed out that that jumping, especially for a massive sturgeon it's an energy expenditure, so there has to be a trade off in in behavioral importance mm-hmm. you know beyond mere fun um, He actually theorizes that this is a form of communication ah. with sturgeons, so they're when they jump out and 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 splash it creates a distinct sound, a slapping noise. But they also, um announce, the, uh, and they also uh, create a, a small sound before and after, um, the jump. It's kind of like, they, they produce kind of like clicks and drumming noises. So it's kind of a clicker, a drumming noise, the jump, the splash, another sound. And he thinks that they might be announcing their presence and position to the larger group. So it's like the mooing of a cow. Wow. Which uh, which I think is an interesting theory. Well, this
1: this does uh, this communication theory plays into something that I'm going to mention later, especially when we talk
0: about sharks. Ah, uh, Yes. And we'll get to sharks in a minute. But before we do, we have a, another potentially dangerous, perhaps even more worrisome for half our listeners uh, fish to contend with. OK,
1: so you may have heard this story. A man is walking in the jungles of the Amazon. Okay. And he realizes that, oh, man, I had so much coffee this morning. I, I need to evacuate some urine. Okay. Yes, you do. So he wades knee-deep into the waters of the river, and he unzips and
0: begins to relieve himself into the water. Question. Why does he wade into the water before he urinates?
1: I had that same question, <laughs> but this is how the story okay. Often goes. All okay. Right. So for a few seconds, this activity proceeds as normal. Uh, but then to his horror, he sees a tiny, barely perceptible shape leap from the surface of the water into his urethra.
0: Oh, okay.
1: In an alternate version of the story, it uh supposedly swims up the column of his urine stream and into his urethra. And then once inside there, it spreads this collection of barbed spines like an umbrella opening inside your urethra. And just lodges itself there and begins to feast on the flesh. And eventually he has to he either dies or he has to undergo a really, really undesirable surgery to get it removed.
0: Ah, well that's horrible. I, I think we've all heard versions of this before. Right? right. You you may remember a version
1: of this from some dialogue between Eric Stoltz and John Voigt in the movie Anaconda.
0: Ah, okay. I, I vaguely remember that. I, I tend to remember the gross out moments of that film more, but yes.
1: Oh, I mostly remember John Voigt's accent. What is his accent supposed to be? <laughs> it's like a cross between South American and, and Count Dracula. That's great. Uh, but, uh, but is this story really true? Does anything like this happen? Can a tiny fish jump out of the water and into somebody's urethra or swim up your urine stream into your urethra? Uh, well, the fish allegedly described in this story is agreed by most authorities to be, in fact, the Vandelia serosa, which is a, a type of parasitic catfish, also known as a vampire catfish. Uh, but it's commonly known in the, the sort of legendary literature as the candiru. These are the facts about Vandelia. So Vandelia is this tiny parasitic catfish, usually about an inch or two inches, you know, two and a half or to five centimeters long, nearly invisible in the water, especially when it hasn't fed recently. Uh, and it occupies the tropical freshwater rivers of South America, Amazon River Basin. And it drinks the blood of other fish. So its regular MO is it you're you're a goldfish or something like that, swimming around in the river. And the Kandiru, uh or the Vandelia, scientifically, swims into into your gills and anchors itself there with spines that line its gill covers. And then it drinks your blood, uh, It becomes engorged, and then it swims away to the bottom to burrow in and digest the bottom of the the, the waterway. Right. OK. Uh, and so when it enters the gills of the host fish, it bites at an uh, aorta artery, ventral or dorsal. And it doesn't need to suck because actually the host's blood pressure just pumps blood into the kandaroo's mouth. So instead of blood sucking, this animal is more like when you hook the lip of a balloon over a water faucet and then turn the water on to make a water mm-hmm. balloon. It's just letting itself
0: fill up. Okay. So the idea here is, is that if it preyed on humans, obviously swimming into a, someone's pee hole is not its its design. No, this would be it would be like a, a like a pork tapeworm getting lost and winding up in your brain. Right, this it doesn't need that to happen, but it occurs accidentally.
1: Right, this is a mistake for this animal. If mm-hmm. the, if this is true, and uh, and it's a it's a fatal mistake for the animal and sometimes for the person, according to the story. So th- those are the facts I just reported. Now there are also a bunch of claims that are commonly reported as fact, and these include that the candiru can swim up the urethra of a person or mammal that might urinate in the water. So the the less unbelievable version is that mammals wade fully into the water and begin to urinate once under the water, and the kandiru swims up one of their orifices, the urethra or the vagina or the anus. Uh, It's commonly reported that this fish is attracted to the flow of urine, maybe because it's chemically similar to some uh, chemicals that would come out of the gills of its host fish. Mm Mm-hmm. More on that in a bit. And then once, in sti- once inside you, it gets stuck, can't escape, dies, obstructs the path of the urethra, you can't pee, and it has to get removed by surgery. Uh, classical stories of this include lots of accounts of penile amputation. So you can see why this causes extreme distress for people getting into these waters.
0: Yeah, and I can also see why a lot of this is sort of hinged on just creating a a cringy, hard tale to share with with visitors say oh the the official swim up your pee hole and then we'll have to Cut your penis off and, right. you know, so it, uh, it, it, it's easy to, to see it as nothing more than that.
1: Yeah. So there, there are two questions here. Number one is the general one to Kandiru actually swim up people's urethras. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, do they perform this even more crazy sounding feat of either jumping from the water, this jumping fish uh, tie in
0: here? Which like, isn't as crazy based on what we've been discussing. Lots of fish jump. So sure. it seems possible. Now, could it jump with such a degree of accuracy? that it jumps straight into your
1: urethra. <laughs> that's kind of tough to imagine. Uh, or the even crazier one, that it swims up the stream of your urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got some doubts about that. Yes. But are there any medical cases of this, in, in the cases in the medical literature? Well, th- there's one major report in the modern day that people refer to. So in 1997, a urogenital surgeon named N.O.R. Samad uh, who was working in Amazonia in, in Brazil, reportedly extracted a dead candiru from a patient's penis. And according to the report of the patient's story, the patient was standing thigh-deep in the water, urinating in the water with his penis above the water, and he reported that the fish jumped out of the water swam up the stream of his urine and into his urethra now i i as i alluded to earlier i'm really suspicious about the physics of the swimming up the urine stream
0: yeah it also makes me wonder if he did have something lodged in his in his uh urethra like he maybe he only became aware of it When he urinated and this and he just happened to be standing in the water and he just he made the assumption that, oh, that's when it entered.
1: Yeah. So we only have this second or, I guess, third hand report in Mm -hmm. this case. So it's hard to know exactly what happened. But imagine the idea like physically just try to think of the fluid mechanics of swimming (laughs) up a stream of urine. It'd be kind of like if you had. Imagine a really good swimmer, like an Olympic swimmer, in a pool, and then you stand on the roof of a house over the pool and aim a fire hose at them <laughs> and say, okay, swim up the stream of the fire hose to me. That mm-hmm. uh, just It doesn't seem to
0: make any sense. It'd be like swimming up a waterfall. When right. Salmon do not swim up a waterfall. But Maybe they can they, they, jump. They can jump over.
1: It. Right. Yeah. So I can believe it's much more likely that a fish simply jumped out of the water and in this one-in-a-million-chance kind of way – happened to jump straight into this guy's unfortunate urethra which we should say does expand during urination that's true so yeah. it kind of opens the uh the possibility there both figuratively and i guess literally so according to a bbc story i read on the kandiru legend um the American marine scientist Stephen Spott met with Samad, the surgeon who supposedly removed the candiru from the guy uh, in 1997, and he met with this guy in 1999 to investigate. And he was shown pictures and video of the extraction. So a real surgery definitely took place. Some, something was actually removed from this guy's urethra. Uh, and there was a, a preserved specimen of the fish itself. But Spott wasn't entirely convinced for a few reasons. One was... um the physical mechanical problem I just mentioned in the patient's story. The other was the uh, preserved specimen was a lot bigger than you'd expect a kandiru to grow, mm-hmm. which in one other source I read, it was more than five inches long and almost half an inch wide. Oh God. Can you, <laughs> and <laughs> and the problem also- is it was bigger than the thing we'd expect to find in your urethra. That also makes the story all the more horrific to envision. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the specimen also, according to spot, did not show signs of having been lodged or removed as described. For example, it didn't have snipped off spines or anything. Hmm. Uh, then again, spot reported that he didn't entirely dismiss the account either. At, at this point, many elements appear unlikely, but it's hard, hard to know what really happened. And. Um, But as a side note, this sort of raises the question of Kandiru entering the urethra and and other body orifices more generally, right? So this has been widely reported as fact all throughout the literature, both scientific and popular, for a couple hundred years now. But a few critical writers have pointed out these accounts are kind of weird. Like, they're almost always vague and secondhand. It happened to somebody that I heard of somewhere up the river. Some guy in the next village had a Kandiru swim or jump into his penis and and get lodged there, um, and also supposedly one of the explanations for this uh, that the candiru are attracted to the chemicals commonly found in human urine, such as urea, mm-hmm. that has been tested and found to be completely without merit. So Stephen Spot, along with the guy I mentioned earlier, along with colleagues Paulo Petri and uh, Jensen Zonan published results of an experiment in 2001 that found that Vandelia, these these parasitic catfishes under lab conditions, just didn't care about the chemical attractants in the water at all. They were not interested in ammonia, amino acids, fresh fish slime, or human urine. No response. They just didn't care. Instead, they seemed to hunt for hosts such as Amazon goldfish, mostly by sight. They saw them and said, those look like some good gills. I'm going to them. And uh, and fortunately, somebody has actually tried to figure out if there's anything to all these stories. Uh, uh, There's a paper in the Journal of Travel Medicine in 2013 by Irmgard Bauer called Kandiru, a little fish with bad habits. Need travel health professionals worry a review. And so in this paper, the least
0: scandalous possible headline. For I this. know.
1: But Bauer essentially concluded that there there's. Probably nothing to these stories. Uh There's they so there was an extensive review of all the available literature, and there's just not strong evidence that these fish pose a threat to humans. Instead, the record sort of indicates that these attacks are they're just always hearsay. The same stories get repeated over and over as if they're fact. hmm. And Bauer concludes by saying, you know, considering the range of this fish, it's all over the place and and how uh, how horrifying their habit is supposed to be. It seems like wouldn't we be hearing about this more often in the modern day? Wouldn't we be encountering stories of this happening? Uh, and and it, it, there's almost nothing. There's just like that, that. Those old stories that have been repeated for decades, and then there's this one disputable nineteen ninety-seven case.
0: Yeah, I mean the only counter argument I can think of is that since it's like a, a, a penile injury, that it would be underreported out of shame or embarrassment, but not if you factor in like the severity of the supposed severity of the infection. You know, so. I,
1: I feel like this is the kind of thing that if there were a confirmed case where somebody went to a hospital mm-hmm. and this was, you know, uh, became part of the medical literature, this would be this would be all over IFL science and everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody would be like, oh, my God, I got to fish up his penis. We've got to report the heck out of this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we just don't see that. Yeah. Now, that being said, there are plenty of other things that can harm your privates. If you go wading around in, uh, you know, Amazonian uh, rivers. and Yeah.
1: Whatnot. In fact, that is part of the explanation is that m- many of these stories may be sort of garblings mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of them come from, you know, colonial periods in in the Amazon and stuff like that, where there were language barriers between the people reporting the stories and then the uh, and then the people writing them down and publishing them. So I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of room for legend and error.
0: Yeah. Plus, I mean, if anyone out there, if you've ever had a UTI, urinary, urinary tract infection, you, you know that it can feel like a tiny barbed fish has swam inside you. Yeah. So I could see where, where such uncomfortable scenarios could lend themselves to, uh, creative interpretations. Right.
1: Okay. So what do we think on that? It, uh, Kandiru leaping into your urethra.
0: Not impossible, but seems unlikely. Let's get into sharks because I think we've all seen these stunning images, some of them photoshopped of great white <laughs> sharks leaping, leaping over out. the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leaping out of yeah, leaping over over bridges or at least Managing to get their entire bodies out of the, the water in a way that just terrifies us because you look and you say, well, that's a monster of the water. Right. But it is not allowed out of the water. It is not allowed up here in the air because that just messes with, with all of the, the guidelines that govern my safety. Yeah. I thought I was supposed to be safe in this boat. Well, mm-hmm. in keeping with our theme of fish leaping at
1: people in their watercraft, uh, did you know that sometimes even great white sharks
0: leap into boats? Entirely into both. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, goodness.
1: So in this case, as with others, this is not a situation of attempted predatory behavior toward the humans on the boat. It's not an attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a very unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> Uh One example of this kind of story, July 2011, I found a National Geographic news story covering one of these events. So in, in July 2011, there's a research vessel off Seal Island, off the coast of South Africa. And if you've seen videos of great white sharks jumping into the air out of the water, very likely that video came from around Seal Island in South Africa. This is one of the most famous places in the world to see this behavior among white sharks. And so uh there's a research vessel in the waters out near this place, and a roughly five hundred kilogram or half ton great white shark jumps into the boat operated by these marine researchers and it's in the boat it's stuck on the deck beneath the <laughs> Oh, the walls in the boat. So it's thrashing around. Everybody had to get the heck away from it uh, and try to figure out how to help it get back into the water so it wouldn't die. Uh ro- Robert, for your benefit, I have a picture here.
0: Oh, wow. It's Just a shark in the boat. That is a big shark, too. Uh-huh. This is not if you're a, if you're picturing like just a juvenile, small little aquarium shark, no, you are a wrong. Huge shark. Yeah.
1: Uh, So, of course, they couldn't get the shark out of the boat by hand. (laughs) Uh, And so they attempted to drag it out with a rope and that failed. And then they so eventually they had to drive the boat back to the harbor and they tried to lift it out of the boat with a crane, which was dangerous to do. But the shark was going to die. So they had to try it. Uh, and they, so they lowered it back into the water, but the shark maybe confused or injured from this stranded itself on a Harbor beach nearby. They attempted to push it back into the water by hand and that failed. Uh, so eventually they tied the animal to the side of a boat and drove it out to sea. And, uh, about half an hour after that, the sharks swam away. It swam away and seemed to recover. It slapped its tail so nobody knows what happened after that. If it eventually went on to live and be okay or if it was injured and if it died, they're just not sure. But I, I hope that sharks out there right now uh longing for seal flesh. Trying to
0: eat Blake Lively.
1: Right. <laughs> So so uh so when a shark leaps out of the water, this is known as breaching. And to use specific terminology that I love from one study that I read, when a shark leaps vertically or near vertically out of the water, so it's coming up from below, uh-huh. vertically into the air with a head up position, this is known as a Polaris breach. Oh, I love that. That's so good. That's a good band name. Uh, so why do sharks breach? Why do, why do they come up out of the water?
0: like? Well, that? based on on a lot of my research that concerns uh, like 1980s Italian shark films that came out in the wake of Jaws, they do it to make a boat explode. Right.
1: right? Yeah, to smash a boat in half. <laughs> no, that is not why ah. they do it. They There are two main kinds of breaching. There may be other minor behavior, but the two main kinds that you'll read about most often are predatory breaching and what's known as natural breaching. Okay. So predatory breaching, it's all there in the name. The, the shark is in the pursuit of prey. There's a seal, you know, pinniped there that's a nice, fatty, delicious, energy-rich meal swimming along near the surface of the water. And in these breaches, the shark moves rapidly up from below bites as it shoots up into the air and then slams back down into the water. And in a lot of cases there, it'll shoot up from below, hit the seal, bite it, and then release it, Mm -hmm. and then wait for the seal to bleed out and die and come back and finish it.
0: This Yeah, I was reading a paper about this the other day in in preparation for this episode, and I found that interesting because I I really had not researched actual shark um, predatory behavior much. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they wound and then allow the, the, the prey to bleed... And then come back for it is interesting because because um, you know nobody wants to get slapped by a seal right including a great white shark yeah you even know? the
1: shark is has to be cautious like a, a prey can injure it if it's fighting around with mm-hmm. it while the prey is still strong so it wants to avoid that in fact one of the papers I read about this by an author named R Aiden Martin who has written on uh, on great white breaching a good bit. Uh, they, they actually put together a shark hunting decision tree. Oh. So it has, it's like a flow chart where, mm-hmm. you know, what, depending on what happens, do you move to this next thing or this next thing? Uh, and so it, it includes like the initial attack and then do you, uh, catch or do you wait and pursue? Uh, do you quote process? I love that. <laughs> At some point the shark begins to process the seal. Um, and we don't mean thinking about the seal here either. No, this is sort of working on it, right? Right. <laughs> Butchering with its mouth, basically. Mm-hmm. So so why does it do this? What well, why is the great white shark attacking the seal in this way? Why didn't it just swim up from behind and bite it? Uh well, think think about how this plays out in practice, like what the conditions are for the predator and for the prey. Looking up from the deep water below, the shark has more ability to see a seal near the surface than the seal does to ah. see a shark. So the seal is illuminated by the sky and these attacks take place more often in low light conditions when there's less penetration of water of the water column by the light in the sky, like if the sun's at an angle. Hmm. So you're a shark, you know, several, you know, meters down below the water and you're looking up, you can see your prey, but it's less likely to see you, especially because of your, uh, your dorsal coloring, the dark coloring on the top of you. And so why is this element of surprise so crucial? Well, When you look at the body composition of a white shark versus a seal... Um, uh, according to one study I read, between 94 and 97 percent of a white shark's muscle is composed of what's known as white muscle. And this is this is sprinting muscle. It's capable of rapid contraction, but it has very low stamina and a pinniped like a seal, on the other hand, can go the distance. It's capable of sustaining long term evasive tactics. So the longer the attack goes on, the better, the, the less chance a shark has of catching the seal and getting it. Um so the sh- the sharks are better at sprinting than marathoning seals can can keep evading so a sudden surprise attack greatly increases the shark's chance of success and this is why this rocketing up from below which leads to breaching uh is so common. Okay. Well that makes perfect sense from the, the from a hunting standpoint. And according to a paper on the uh, on the physics of this process, so the shark usually starts uh, down deep in the water, a place where the the bottom depth is between 26 and 30 meters, and uh, in these cases, the entire attack, you know, leaping up from the bottom uh, after they begin their strikes to uh, to the seal is about two to two and a half seconds. So it just doesn't give the seal much time at all to react and then of course at the speed it takes to hit the seal from below that fast Mm -hmm. the sharks still propelled upwards and it's going out of the water um and in these cases the shark attacks are successful about 40 to 55 percent of the time which is not a bad hunting success rate yeah but then there's this other kind of breaching I yeah that's that's predatory breaching jumping out of the water to kill there's also what's known as natural breaching when the shark breaches for no obvious reason. There's no predatory attack or anything. Um no bait on the surface that it's being coaxed to
0: the the surface with.
1: Right. Yeah. So why what what's going on here? Well, according to one theory, sh- sharks have these well-developed uh, mechanoreceptors and chemoreceptors and electroreceptors. They have all kind you know, receptive sensing uh organs that we don't have at that kind of level so it's been hypothesized that tail slap so that's one type of uh, slapping behavior and then mm-hmm. breaching jumping out of the water and splashing down are communicative they they're allowing sharks to communicate between one another uh through agonistic behaviors that's you know fighting displays oh, like, okay. i'm tough i this is my food you better get away because i could fight you for it uh, and it's true that lots of fishes do use sound as a communication channel and so it's hypothesized that these behaviors like tail slapping and breaching jumping out of the water and splashing down could exploit this kind of mechanoreception this this sound sensitive ability of fish to communicate between the sharks and when you think about it a, a shark jumping out of the water and splashing down is not necessarily a bad signifier of fitness that's like the the bigger you are And the stronger you are, the harder of a splashdown
0: you can make. Yeah. It certainly, I mean, it makes a statement to us, and we're not even sharks. Yeah.
1: And one reason to think this is a good explanation is that this natural breaching often seems to happen with sharks in the presence of other sharks, not just Mm -hmm. hanging out by themselves.
0: Now... This is interesting. We're talking about this breaching behavior that's taking place, uh, specifically the predatory breaching behavior. Right. It's taking place uh, in the presence of these seals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you brought up an interesting um, tidbit. Uh, yesterday about the the recent uh, shark mo- movie, uh, The Shallows, yeah, in which the shark tries to eat Blake Lively. Yeah, uh, about uh, about what what does it mean when we see a movie shark breaching like this in seemingly tropical waters?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, this was uh interesting. I, I believe I read this now this isn't in my notes i'm just trying to recall from memory uh-huh. uh, but uh, I, I recall that i read this i think on smithsonian.com okay. where uh, they were reviewing the trailer of the film but they they spoke to a marine biologist who had some knowledge of shark behaviors and said okay look at how the sharks acting in the trailer for this movie is this basically accurate uh and i recall what the uh, the expert said was well it looks like this movie's supposed to take place in tropical waters and yet you see the shark when it attacks, this guy leaps out of the water, That's breaching behavior, which is not necessarily something you'd be likely to see in tropical waters, because the places you really see it are, are like in South Africa, where they have these uh th- these prey like seals that they have to attack in this manner in order to maximize their success rated catching them in tropical waters sharks probably have access to fish that are much more slow moving yeah. and easier to catch and they they just they don't have to resort to these breaching behaviors in order to catch meals yeah uh, so that they uh, the, the expert they talked to rated that as not quite so
0: plausible yeah but from a cinematic standpoint nothing is more terrifying than the shark coming out of its habitat Into our habitat in order to especially to eat us. It's the inherent perversity of the land shark. It is. (laughs) All right. Well, at this point, we really have only one sort of leaping, jumping fish to consider. Right. And that is, of course, the so-called flying fish.
1: Right. Because the distinction between jumping and flying may seem very clear. To mm-hmm. you, right? You know, uh, uh, kangaroos jump and birds fly, and, and th- th- these are not all that similar behaviors. But the dividing line between them, I don't know.
0: Is it really just time? <laughs> well, yeah, you can certainly bog yourself down in, in, um, definitions of flight. Right. Uh, to be clear with, with the flying fish, we are talking about a gliding, sometimes kind of a hydroplaning where they're just where the the, the tail is still in contact with the water. Um, so it's not powered flight. It's not true flight. So we're not talking about Piranha to the spawning here. Right, right. And then there are certainly no feathers involved. But um it, it's interesting to put this in you know, to sort of top off this discussion of all these leaping and jumping behaviors because gliding fish might seem like the, the evolutionary pinnacle of jumping fish, right? But th- but the interesting thing here is that they're nothing new at all. In 2012, paleontologists found a near-complete skeleton from the uh, Tri- Triassic period, and that's 235 to 242 million years ago. Um, and, and near-complete skeleton boasted all the key attributes of the modern flying fish, well-developed pectoral fin and a forked asymmetrical tail. Hmm. And even this form seemed to have evolved independently from the 64 known species of flying fish we find today in all the world's oceans. Independent. So it's not like an ancestor of them, like a cousin of them that's now not here. Right. It developed this gliding technique on its own. Um, So, it's interesting just to to realize that that gliding fish have evolved in the past separately. They've died, died out, and uh, and we have a fairly successful model of it today in the, in these uh, sixty four known species of flying fish, and um, and again they don't necessarily fly as much as they glide, but they can they can really glide. So then what what would the difference be between a fish that glides and a fish that actually quote flies? Well, again, this is an area where, where individuals can get into discussions and disagreements over what defines flight, but essentially yeah. it's the difference between powered flight and gliding. Okay. Alright, so is it, is the creature flapping its wings in order to sustain itself in the air, Uh or is it merely sort of falling with grace, right? Right. Uh, Hang glider versus an airplane. Exactly, uh, because we see plenty of gliding creatures, and it generally means in order to glide, you need to either Fall from something high, such as a tree, which is why we see so many, um, uh, you know, tree-based gliders, arboreal gliders, right. or it needs to be able to jump up high enough to glide a little bit, and that's what we see with gliding or flying fish. Um, and they can they can really glide. They can uh, glide and or hydroplane distances of uh, thirteen hundred feet or four hundred meters in thirty seconds, with maximum flight speeds of up to forty five miles per hour or seventy two kilometers per hour, which is pretty impressive. Uh, I feel like we've all seen, like, splendid videos of this taking place. It's it's pretty impressive.
1: So, since these fish are small, I imagine they are not breaching to, uh, to inflict predatory damage on a seal
0: or something like that. No, no, no. These are, these are generally plankton eaters, and pretty much everybody agrees that they jump and glide to escape. There are many, many enemies in the sea. Okay. Yeah. Yet another evasive maneuver. Right. Now, there have been some that have proposed that this has to do with energy conservation, like the running or porpoising that is observed in marine uh, mammals, such as penguins or dolphins. But it really doesn't pan out when you crunch all the factors, including the oxygen debt of takeoff. Uh, And uh, biologist John Davenport did just this sort of crunching in his 1994 paper, how and why do flying fish fly? Which is a, a certainly a, a good in-depth read if you really want to get into the mm-hmm. the economics and the physics of this. Uh, another theory sees all of this as a means to move from a food or plankton poor area to a food rich area, thus making the uh, energy expenditure worth it. Essentially, kind of like Raiden teleporting during a fight to get behind an opponent. You're not in a good position for your food. Teleport to the, to the, to the positive position via flight. Okay. But there's not a lot of evidence to back that up. Yeah. So
1: why, why would the flying or gliding in that case be better than just swimming
0: to the food rich area? I just have to go back to the Raiden analogy there. It's yeah. just the, the, in, it's in the, the realm of water. It is more like an instant appearance uh-huh. as opposed to a journey to. Okay. But again, so you can pretty much. Don't worry too much about that theory, because pretty much everybody is still in agreement. This is about escaping predators. Now, in escaping those predators, flying fish that or gliding fish, uh, they don't flap their wings to gain lift. Um, they propel through the air-water interface. I like that terminology. Right. At a shallow angle, unfurl their large lateral fins and then rapidly beat their tail in the water prior to actual liftoff. And it's interesting, too, that they have to be a certain size before they can actually pull this off the smaller flying fish uh before they've attained uh, uh appropriate size they can't actually uh uh pull this off uh, they're limited to simple leaps with their fins uh held against the body by surface tension huh yeah
1: okay well well, so flying fish, you might say in this case is kind of a misnomer then uh, yes it's they're they're gliding fish we have jumping fish we have. Longer jumping fish, <laughs> we have gliding fish, but I wonder why no fish with the ability to maintain sustained flight. Mm-hmm. Because if you imagine the, the evolution of flight in its many forms, uh, it's commonly hypothesized that uh, flight organs began with gliding organs, you know, or, organisms uh had had maybe movements or or gliding uh organs that would help them coast from one tree to another or help them escape a predator faster and over time these organs developed until they were able to create powered sustained flight like birds. Right. So why haven't fish gone there? Why
0: are there no fish birds? I know you can't help but but think about this, especially when you look at you jumping and then gliding, why not flying? Why why have they not taken that next step? And then, indeed, is that step even possible, right? Uh-huh. Because, as, as you pointed out, so many of these examples of flight that we have, um, and certainly there are not that many, you can ultimately kind of look as, at flight as a, as a rare adaptation, even though it has been tremendously successful for the organisms that have achieved it. Uh-huh. Because as uh, vertebrates go, we've, we've only seen three takes on flight. We've seen um, uh, petrosaurin flight. We've seen avian flight. And we've seen, you know, bat flight. Yeah. And uh, and fish, so far as we know, unless there's some sort of fossil out there that we've yet <laughs> to uh, uncover, they've never crossed the threshold. Uh, and uh and, and in all, when you take in all biology, you have a single ex- uh, extinct lineage and three extant clades, birds, bats, and the... And and uh, and also insects.
1: But even in these three extant examples of of uh, vertebrate flight, they are examples of convergent evolution, not like the uh, pterosaurs, the birds and the bats didn't evolve from each other. They all independently achieved the
0: mechanisms of flight. That's right. They exploit the same physical properties, but they're all different solutions to the same problem. I was looking at this uh, book by David E. Alexander and Stephen Vogel uh, titled Nature's Flyers, Birds, Insects and the Biomechanics of Flight. And they put it into context like this, quote, although such convergent features may make two animals appear quite similar, the adaptations are only superficially similar and have fundamental differences. Fish are cold-blooded, scaly animals with gills, but por- porpoises are warm-blooded, smooth-skinned breathers of air. The point being that these are both, not flight-based, but these are both sea creatures with similar forms at first glance, but they're, of course, very different organisms. Right. Uh, it continues. Hummingbirds and bumblebees have almost identical wingbeat patterns, but hummingbird wings are made of bone, muscle, and feathers. Bee wings are made of uh, pleated membranes supported by stiff, hollow veins. And they point out, too, that technological evolution has produced several areas of convergence between flying animals and flying machines. Quote, the convergences were not intentional copies of mechanisms used by animals, but technological solutions to common challenges faced by all flyers. So this would
1: seem to indicate that there's no inherent reason you couldn't expect fish to evolve mechanisms like a bird's wings or like an insect's wings. Uh, they would just be, you know, fishier. Basically, right? They would, they would be evolved from the
0: equipment available to fish anatomy. Well, the, the one place that my mind immediately meant, went was all right. So all most, it seems like all these other examples are are land creatures that that take to gliding. So maybe dwelling on the land is an essential prerequisite to to the sort of gliding that evolves into flight.
1: Yeah, that could certainly like, do you need a runway in order mm-hmm. to evolve flight or a solid runway or uh, or a high place to jump off of? Can you mm-hmm. just not really uh, ever evolutionarily justify the the evolution of propelled flight mechanisms if you always have to start from
0: underwater? Right. And and maybe that does hold true of vertebrates. But then, according to biologist Jim Martin, Uh, the possible exception is with insects. Flapping gills could have evolved into flight capable wings as an aquatic, uh, in an aquatic environment, according to Martin. So, insects may have an out there, but maybe this prerequisite holds true with vertebrates. Uh, but the thing is, when you start asking this question, you also have to, to take it outside of fish too. Because we could also say, ask the same thing about other gliding organisms, gliding snakes, lizards, the gliding squid, uh, various gliding arboreal uh, mammals, including lemurs. Why are there no flying lemurs? Yeah. So, uh, because certainly they're, they're in the position where they're, they're leaping out of trees, they're gliding a little. Why does that uh, not develop into flight?
1: I guess the simplest explanation to me, would would just be a guess, but it would be that there's just not enough incentive for it. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe there's just no clear advantage, survival or reproduction advantage, to fish remaining in the air for longer than it takes to glide a, a short distance. Because, you know, when you think about it, what really happens in the air? I mean, birds use the air to traverse between different locations of feeding and breeding and stuff like that. I suppose fish could do the same thing, but I don't know. Would they be more... Uh, would they be more open to bird predation if they were to fly around in the air all the time? Yeah. With, uh, I mean, it, it could just be that there's not enough reason
0: for them to have this trait. Yeah, because yeah, because when, when you it's the one thing to say, all right, why why don't the flying fish just become a true flying organism? But you also have to provide the reason for it. Uh, like, how is that going to work? Is it is it is it really a benefit? That's going to play out in evolution. Yeah, and uh, so far the answer seems to be no. Now, uh, I do have to mention that um, this this larger question of why do some lineages evolve into the sky and others not it remains something of a mystery. And scientists have even looked to underlying molecular mechanisms. And this whole there's a whole study of biological uh, periodicity. Uh, that gets into this. It gets really, really deep and complex, bit and, and, uh, and has a lot of, uh, bit, a lot of parallels in, uh, in, uh, molecular, uh, concerns. So, huh. it's, uh, uh, so, so it, it, it ends up being a deeper question than just why don't fish, uh, actually fly? But why does, do, do any number of Watch creatures not fly? fly. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: one more thing I probably should say. It's, it may have been, too obvious for us to mention, but of course there is the impediment of breathing. Oh yes, right? you know, yeah. fish
0: have gills, but, uh, but I, certainly I we, we were... have land again. Right back to the uh, the, the, the mudskippers and the uh-huh. walking catfish. This uh, and earlier forms of lungfish. So that alone doesn't seem like it would be a, um, you know an eliminating factor, but it would certainly still be a concern because they are venturing outside of their realm. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Um, now, it, we only covered some of the, the jumping fish out there in the world. So we may have missed uh, some examples that you're particularly fond of or some just examples you've seen in real life and have some stories related to.
1: Yeah. And one thing I do think we should make clear is that, uh, Robert, you and I, we're not trying to be alarmists about fish jumping. We We have covered several stories of fish jumping into boats, fish jumping into people and uh injuries that have been sustained on those accounts but i think these events are exceedingly rare overall so yeah. you really don't need to be like super worried about getting killed by a jumping fish
0: right but certainly if there's a sign saying telling you not to to drive too fast on the water because there are leaping sturgeon i would acknowledge that sign and remember that yes individuals have been injured or killed so yeah be cautious honor the sturgeon notice. honor the sturgeon indeed All right. So, hey, if you want to check out uh, more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, uh, as well as links out to various uh, social media accounts, such as, uh, you know, Twitter, Tumblr. Facebook And, hey, if you follow us on Facebook, uh, make sure you, uh, you you click it so that we show up in your feed immediately. Oh, yeah? Um, how do they do that? Uh, there's an option there at the top, like a star or something. Yeah? Uh, I don't have it in front of me. But it's doable. It's very doable. And you should do it because you never know how Facebook's going to tweak that algorithm and uh, make it to where the things that you love, such as us, no longer show up. Oh, yeah. We would love it if the
1: majority of commenters on our Facebook posts were actual podcast listeners. That would be awesome.
0: <laughs> we do have a few. few few randos that wander in. Uh, And hey, if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, how can they do it? How can they fling that mackerel into our boat? Well, you can always email us at blowthemind at
1: HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Thank you do you